there's like, what, like 45 questions and we have to get through them in 56 minutes, so this will be fun. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here, first of all. Um, I'll kick it off with, is this your first time in Turkey? And what actually brings you here to Istanbul this week? This uh, is indeed my first time in Turkey. Um, oh, so I've actually been here for about three weeks now. I, I came on the 29th. Uh, there was a, a, a two-week uh, Zuzalu gathering here called uh, ZooConnect um, down in the, uh, in the south uh, near that area close to the uh, Galata Tower. Um, so that was really interesting and uh, that went into a bunch of areas like both Ethereum and ZK and uh, things that go a bit beyond it and uh, you know brain computer interfaces and other uh, fun things in that in that area then uh, for this week I've been at all of the various events that call themselves DevConnect I suppose and you know gave a whole bunch of presentations um, you know three yesterday fortunately just one today uh, but uh, you know it's been it's been fun so far Perfect. And how do you feel uh, about the significance of gathering the global crypto community in Turkey? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, Turkey is uh, just obviously one of the uh, places where there's just been a huge amount of grassroots uh, interest in and uh, adoption of crypto for a long time. And I mean, it's obvious from the statistics, it's obvious from just uh, like whenever I would make tweets, I would always see like a huge number of responses in Turkish. And uh, you know, like I'd always uh, just click the translate button and be really curious about what kinds of things they yeah, have to say. Um, the yeah, use case is obvious, right? I mean, uh, yeah. I remember the first time I yeah, passed through the Istanbul airport uh, back in 2013 and like the rate was 3.5 and uh, now it's 28. And uh, you know, when you're living through that, the the value of just uh, like being having some alternative thing to save money and just becomes incredibly obvious. Um, it's, uh, and also, I'm not saying a place where a lot of uh, crypto projects that um, have uh, um, become um, you know internationally known and valuable, you know, either are Turkish or have uh, a lot of uh, Turkish people that uh, come uh, are part of the teams, right? In this case, I mean, there's like the Chainway team, there's the yeah, people, f the, the Quave uh, wallet, there's uh, a bunch of others. That was just kind of the yeah, examples from um, you know, account abstraction and privacy that I've been focused on a lot recently. Um, so yeah, and there's a lot of activity here. And uh, I think in general, like in the Ethereum community, we try to uh, intentionally go around the world and go to where all of the yeah, different people are. Um, so it's, uh, I mean, this is a place I've uh, definitely looked forward to coming to for a long time. And, uh, and I mean, it's definitely yeah, fun for me to finally be here. And, uh, you know, I hope all of the members, members of our community also um, you know, benefit from the experience a lot. Absolutely. I know the Turkish community have been looking forward to this for a long, long time and that they appreciate it. And what are your sort of key takeaways and your highlights of having spent a prolonged period of time here? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've, de like, I've definitely noticed that the interest in uh, crypto is real, right? I, yeah, I walked uh, down through the, uh, the market in that uh, peninsula down south and just like passed by at least like five different um, you know, like shops that ha are advertising, you know, 
ETH, BTC, like sometimes like SHIB and whatever, uh, whatever else people are interested in buying. And uh, look, there's just clearly a lot of uh, just actual attention and a lot of um, interest. And I mean, just seeing the interest from builders, I think, is uh, also one of those other things that has been uh, really, yeah, really confirmed for me. Um, so I think, uh, you know, for a lot of us, that's just been uh, good for building relationships, um, good um, for just uh, getting our feet on the ground and just understanding the situation in some more detail. And, uh, you know, I look forward to coming back again. I look forward to you know, working together more with uh, all of the various teams that we've gotten to know better. Perfect. And given that Turkey now reportedly has the highest levels of crypto adoption, that the estimates range from, I think, 25 to 52% of people owning crypto, uh, how critical do you think Turkey is as a, for, uh, as a hub for crypto adoption? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's absolutely, yeah, critical. Um, I mean, I think what's uh, interesting about Turkey, it kind of... Uh, mirrors some things that I saw in Argentina, which is that like there is this uh, combination of uh, what's like what is a dysfunctional environment in some ways, but with uh, people who are very talented and who are um, you know like both just very sophisticated in you know like figuring out ways that to to do the things that they uh, need to do to um, you know, like economically just, uh, survive for themselves for themselves and their families and to like actually yeah build things that uh, go further from there. Um, so it's uh, in environments where I think uh, in there is a potential for a really strong developer community to um, appear, like something that's even much stronger than what we've, uh, what we've seen so far. Um, so yeah, and I think a huge amount of potential for development, obviously yeah, already a yeah, very, large amount of usage. Um, still a way to go in terms of like getting um, inroads for actually decentralized things and not people just uh, you know interacting with uh, crypto through um, you know, like centralized exchange wallets. But uh, you know that's uh, that's a challenge everywhere, and that's like fair because um, you know the blockchains have definitely not been scalable enough or usable enough, and that's something that the space just needs to improve on. Um, Absolutely. And you mentioned some of the projects that you've interacted with since you arrived here in Turkey. But what type of new projects, uh, I'm curious, have you come across uh, since arriving here that sort of excite you? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Or is it perhaps just the projects that you've seen and heard of in the past? Is I, th I think, actually, I think Clave is one of the new, the, the, the ones that I've heard about for the first time here. Perfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we have a question as well here from the community. It's, mm. uh, what is your favorite Turkish dish? That's a, a good question. Um, actually, I mean, I think the tea is up there. Like normally, I always just do green tea everywhere, but here, like I actually I have the local like the Turkish tea about half the time and. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's quite good. It's quite unique. Um, it's, uh, I mean, definitely appreciate, um, you know, like not getting sugar poured into it. Um, it's uh, one of those, uh, you know, I try to, try to minimize sugar and I always appreciate when people are helpful there without asking. Um, hmm. 
Yeah, what? It is indeed a big tea-consuming nation. I think they even grow their own tea, um, surprisingly. Mm. Yeah, I'm... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, I know the Turkish community appreciates when people come and appreciate their uh, goods and services as well. So we're going to move on very quickly to some Ethereum-related questions. Um, the Ethereum roadmap was last updated in November last year. Uh, can you give me an update on the Ethereum roadmap considering its past, present, and future? Yeah, I mean, I feel like in general, the Ethereum roadmap has been stabilizing quite a bit over the last few years, right? Um, and because historically, there have been a lot of things that have changed because of just uh, like changes in circumstances, changes in ideas, realizing that something doesn't work, realizing that something does work, new problems popping up. I think uh, the big um, changes between last year and this year would be, yeah, one is just a realization that like there's something to be done about staking centralization, right? Like the status quo of um, you know the different pools and uh, solo staking being um, hard and all of those things is uh, not really healthy. And there's a uh, I think a big opportunity to do some uh, redesigns to, to the uh, staking system that really alleviates some of those issues and both improve centralization um, and even try to make the algorithm more efficient and like, for example, just like have single slot finality but only have like 10,000 signatures in each slot instead of uh, not having single slot finality and having like 30,000 signatures in each slot, which is what we do today, right? There's a lot of room to try to like once you make some uh, um, trade-offs that I think realistically will have to be made anyway uh, to really yeah, improve uh, on efficiency and improve on decentralization at the same time. Um, so that's one of the threads that I yeah, expect will continue to be yeah, worked on. Um, then data availability and that side of things is like basically, yeah, Probably a bit a bit slower than we expected, but it's uh, still moving uh, moving forward on the same path as we expected. Um, in general, on scaling, I feel like the pendulum has swung back slightly toward more um, off-chain data stuff, right? Because of uh, like both because the uh, amount of near-term and mid-term demand is so high that like even the data availability that we can do is not going to be able to cover it, and because the uh, um, the level of security that you can get with off-chain stuff, I think, is uh, higher than anticipated. Like, a lot of the plasma ideas that I talked about a couple of days ago are probably a good example of that, right? Um, but otherwise, still moving forward on data availability. I'm still moving forward on vertical trees, synarching the EVM, um, you know, the um, all of the EVM improvement efforts, um, just all of those different things. So. Definitely, yeah, a lot going on the same path. Um, I think uh, nothing new on the functionality side. Maybe, ex I mean, unless you include like the whole off-chain data thing, but that's kind of, I mean, by definition, off-chain, you know, like outside the layer one. Um, so, you know, it doesn't touch the core devs, yay. Uh, but uh, it's, yeah, just uh, a sort of risk responding to threats and uh, you know, like making sure things like security and decentralization get preserved and just like some fairly uh, small tweaks compared to years uh, years in the past. So yeah, in, in general, the roadmap is stabilizing, which I think is a really good sign.
Perfect. And you mentioned that uh, at the beginning of that response, some ideas had changed. Uh, is, is it important for the community to view the roadmap as something that can be dynamic if new information is introduced uh, into the equation and, and things can change? Or should they really think of it as, as guidelines that are more concrete? Um, hmm. And I think there is different tiers of ideas in Ethereum in terms of uh, how much people are attached to them, right? So like at the top there is uh, what, what people call immutability, right? That like the, you know, like hard forks should not just like arbitrarily go in and like take away some people's money and give other people money. And uh, like as we've seen in the, the, the DAO situation, like that's something that people highly value and uh, trying to interfere with uh, that is it would be is just like extremely politically costly and that's uh, something that's going to be true no matter what the changes to technology are then there's uh, you know like a bit at a lower tier you know like things like proof of stake and uh, like switching over from proof of stake uh, you know like back to proof of fork for example would just be like totally politically yeah, unviable at this point but like switching from proof of stake to a better proof of stake then you know like there's I think uh, a lot of uh, room for discussion there. Probably more than last year, especially yeah, now that the whole pool uh, centralization discussion has uh, come into the foreground more. Then you have things like uh, you know the EVM, and uh, there, I don't think like community members are really emotionally attached to the EVM. I think uh, there's a desire to make sure that existing applications can keep running and uh, there's a desire to minimize complexity. And like those two things together basically already add up to like roughly keeping the EVM and uh, if you add functionality, do it sparingly. But like beyond that, there isn't that strong an attachment. And then, you know, you have like specific algorithms that like can totally be changed if people want to. And then once you get into the weeds, it's just all, you know, technical features that a lot of people don't really uh, care about and they're happy to uh, defer to the experts. So, yeah, I think it's uh, a spectrum between um, all of those things. Perfect, thank you. And the Denkun upgrade is expected to be live early 2024. Mm. What should we know ahead of time and what can we expect on that? Mm. So AP4844 is obviously the big one. Um, and what's interesting, I think, about EIP 4844 is that if you look at the roadmap to full dank sharding, right? Full dank sharding is the one that gives us a data space that could go all the way up to like 16 megabytes a slot or, or even more. Once you have EIP 4844 like, um, out the door, the only hard forks that you need to get to full dank sharding are just a parameter change, right? Just like changing the maximum number of blobs. And maybe at some point we just make that a voting system and then you don't need any more hard forks to go up. And so the, um, the rest of the rollout to full dank sharding is not a change to Ethereum consensus or execution. It's a change to this extremely isolated thing that just says, like, down, tell me that this block can be downloaded if he wants to. And like the, at, at the beginning, that is just done with full downloading. But over time, like that can be done with data availability sampling and uh, data availability sampling itself can be upgraded over time. And that's like a piece that individual clients can upgrade like even separately, even um, out of sync with each other as the network improves. Um, so yeah, it's uh, the sort of thing that uh, does, that like once you do the first step, doing the yeah, steps after that is relatively easy 
in the sense that it's just like a group of people working in the corner and they uh, don't really have to interact much with the rest of the, uh, of, of the ecosystem. Um, and yeah, once uh, the first hard forks out the door, then it's like a, a smoother ride from there, which uh, I think is uh, you know, really valuable and good. Um, yeah, I mean, there's things after that, like me taking small steps toward getting rid of RLP is something that I'm excited about, just kind of cleaning up all the different Ethereum consensus pieces. Um, yeah. Quite a few exciting things to look forward to there. And I have um, uh, a question for you on rollups. Um, they appear to be too expensive mm -hmm. and they rely on centralized sequences, which introduces a degree of risk. Mm -hmm. um, so the question is, how will Ethereum address these risks? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the rollup teams uh, that I've uh, talked to and that I've uh, I mean, asked them on stage here in Istanbul, they're all very actively moving toward decentralized sequencing. Um, and a lot of the time that just means like instead of one node doing the sequencing, have a consensus algorithm, just like take something like Tendermint off the shelf and just have it um, you know, run a chain and then commit from that chain into the Ethereum chain. And then like, you have a decentralized sequencer right there. Um, the yeah, for rollup data costs, um, there's basically two solutions, right? One is to like become a plasma or or at least a validium and uh, do off-chain data and try to be as secure as you can with that. And then the other is to wait for forward for four and then to wait for um, other things after that. And what I notice is that most of the rollup teams that I follow are taking both approaches at the same time, right? Like. Uh, I think that this issue of optimism and Arbitrum and Polygon, like they, yeah, they all have a roll-up offering and they have a Validium offering, right? And uh, you know, if you want the higher security, you go do the roll-up. If you want the uh, higher scalability, you go do the Validium. Uh, so I think that's uh, something really interesting. Um, and it's, I mean, it is definitely the right choice. Uh, I think just because different applications have different needs in the short term, and then in the longer term, like uh, either it just becomes clear what the split between the two is, or one of them improves to the point where the other becomes completely unnecessary, and so we'll see how that goes. Perfect, thank you. And uh, also a related question, when it comes to scaling rollups themselves, what do you think the main bottleneck is there? Um, in the short term, it's definitely data. Uh, just having more data um, space um, that is guaranteed to be available. Um, there are other bottlenecks as well. Um, so one of them is just uh, optimizing ZK provers so that they can uh, make proofs as quickly as possible. Um, sometimes it's just, it's like how much they can process in a single thread. Like, I mean, I know two or three years ago that was actually the biggest deal for optimism. Like they could not handle more than like 20 or 30 TPS within their own chain. Um, but and I think as uh, activity in these rollups improves, like those kinds of issues are going to come back, um, and so they might need to do parallelization internally. They might need to do other things, which is going to be interesting to see. Um, yeah, I think quick, those are the three. Okay, and uh, moving on to user experience for a brief moment. It's another one of those barriers for um, uh, barriers to entry, rather, for newcomers who find the UI complicated or unfamiliar or sometimes difficult to navigate. So, how are you working on addressing this? Mm. Yeah, I and mean, I think um, 
there's different ways to think about the user experience problem. Like the one that I think about the most is like what I call the user experience of security, right? Like it's not user experience versus security. It's uh, improving the user experience of being secure enough that you know that uh, you know your APR next year is not going to be negative one hundred percent. So. That's uh, like this is a big part of why you know, I've been focusing so much on account abstraction. And uh, there are wallet companies that are doing really fascinating stuff now with, with AA. Like, there are wallet companies that are using uh, like trusted hardware modules that already exist in people's phones to store keys and basically having like, like relying on that more limited and uh, more secure core. Um, so your coins uh, still have a layer of security even if the rest of your phone's operating system gets hacked. There are um, I mean, things like ZK email that try to like use even email addresses or other sort of more conventional things that people outside of crypto already have as guardians for their wallets to recover if they lose their keys. Um, there are yeah, thing. Just uh, ongoing efforts to try to make like the UI for um, you know like, things like choosing uh, guardians um, easier, and then on the application level side, and this is uh, another whole big security rabbit hole is like if. Uh, Someone sends you a link like, hey, here's an airdrop, and you go to the link, and then it tells you to sign something in MetaMask, and then like, if you're about to click it, how do you even know, like, is that a real airdrop, or are you about to click something that's gonna steal all your money, right? And like, for most users, this is super hard, and I think there's uh, a yeah, big frontier of possibilities for wallets um, there to try to really improve and to do a much better job of uh, helping users better understand what it is that they're about to sign. And like that does require wallets to really become much more opinionated and not just kind of uh, you know show the hacks and like be a yeah, static thing that uh, where they just by yeah, you know giving people a bunch of uh, you know zero to nines and A to F so they think that they're finished doing their duty. Like it's something that will require the wallet to have a dedicated team and probably push out updates every month. Uh, but uh, yeah, really trying to improve on uh, that side of security, I think is something that just is uh, super important and wallets are going to have to do more of. Mm -hmm. And while we're on the topic of security, uh, ethereum.org states that security upgrades on the roadmap are in the advanced stages of research. Um, so what improvements can we expect? Hmm. I think, um, I mean, if we're talking about the Ethereum L1, then the main security upgrade is just uh, the proof of stake and uh, hardening the proof of stake, like improving its decentralization. If we're talking about L2s, then the biggest security upgrade is going to be just uh, making sure the ZK EVMs are hardened enough that there aren't serious bugs in the code. Um, if we're talking on the user side, then I think there's like two ends. There's the uh, you know keeping your coins safe within the wallet, and then there is uh, keeping your coins safe while you're interacting with applications. And uh, if, like, those aren't really protocol changes. Those are just uh, going, to be ha going to have to be wallets that uh, just actively responds to all kinds of threats. Um, okay, yeah. yeah. And um, <clears throat> a majority of Ethereum nodes currently run through centralized providers like uh, Amazon Web Services, which leaves the system exposed to a centralized failure. Mm. So how do you see this being addressed going forward? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two parts to this, right? One part is that we need to 
improve the uh, software so that running through centralized providers just becomes less necessary in general. Right, so ideally, uh, something like the portal network would just be yeah, active and would be yeah, running and uh, really effective. And so we would have a yeah, decentralized peer-to-peer -peer network that if you wanted to go ask for specific pieces of uh, the state or history, you would go there into the portal network and it would uh, give you back a reply with proofs and uh, you'd be able to verify the proofs and you would not have to like verify and uh, um, rely on centralized nodes at all. Um, the yeah, best that we have now is uh, Helios, which is a yeah, light client uh, done by the A16Z team that basically uses uh, ZK Snark over the sync committee. And that just allows people to have a really basic guarantee that they're following the correct chain, at least assuming the majority of the validators are honest. And uh, if the, uh, so, that is pretty limited in, in its functionality, right? Because that just tells you you have the right block headers and like users need a lot more the block header than block headers, but um, you know, it is a start, right? And if we just at least have like better hardening, like if we have a better ability for users to verify Merkle branches locally and uh, have light clients uh, that, that run locally, then what you can have is you can have more but lower quality servers, and then you can do a one event between them, right? Like you don't need to just talk to Infura, you can talk to like five different servers and uh, you, they could even be based in like five different countries that don't like each other if you uh, care about, uh, you know, minimizing even your political risk. And uh, then you just like, you know, get your data from all of them and then like locally you verify the branches and if any one of them tries to trick you, then like they're gonna give you a bad branch and like you're not going to be able, and like the verification on your side is going to fail, right? So like going, going to one of N, I think, is uh, also something that can be done. Um, and then maybe we can eventually have a sort of utopian, you know, like perfect peer-to-peer -peer network where we don't need to have kind of servers where you explicitly have to type in their IP addresses at all. And that would be super basic, but I think it's gonna take a bit longer to get to that. Um, but I, and I think uh, realistically we, we can, we just have to work towards it. Um, yeah, and then, and there's obviously the equivalent of that for just being able to push um, transactions. There's more sophisticated stuff too. Like uh, I know a lot of dApps recently have been using things like the graph because they just need like specific uh, claims about history that are too difficult for a regular node to get. And then like that also has its own uh, decentralization challenges inside of it as well. Um, so. Yeah, I think the answer just like is continuing to improve on technology and getting to the point where like you actually have that kind of verification. Thank you. And on client diversity, um, it's it's important for a more resilient network. So, can you explain why client centralization poses a risk and how Ethereum will address these challenges, particularly based on the execution clients? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. So, there's two kinds of risks in. Uh, client uh, centralization. So there is the yeah, like software bug risk. Like basically if you have one client and there's something wrong with that one client, then like you're going to have a wrong chain and that wrong chain is going to keep going and it's going to finalize. And uh, look, that's bad. Actually, yeah, 
what a lot of people don't realize is like when you think you have one client, sometimes you actually have two clients. And like two clients is definitely worse, worse than five, right? Two clients is worse than five because if you have two clients, then any bug, even a bug where like the results are inconsequential, is gonna be a 50-50 split and it's gonna cause a really big problem on chain. If you have five clients, if one of them fails, then like that's only 20% and it doesn't matter, right? But one client, in theory, is two clients in practice because of uh, versioning, right? So this is something that happened in Bitcoin back in 2013. There was uh, a bug in the yeah, database of uh, the yeah, Bitcoin Core client where one version would uh, basically rely on the database to update uh, blocks in a, in a way where the database had a default setting that did not allow it to make more than about 5,000 changes at the same time. and. Another, uh, a newer version had a different database that did not have that problem. And so there was uh, at some point a block that made more than 5,000 changes and it like, basically triggered this split and some clients rejected the uh, block and other clients accepted it, right? And like that created a really big split on the network and it caused like uh, over a dozen blocks, like, like I think four hours of history to revert. Um, so it got pretty bad. Um, the, so, but if you have a diversity of clients, then like one of those having that kind of internal problem is going to be much less of an issue, right? So that's a technical issue. The political issue is basically like preventing one single client dev team from having too much power to set the agenda and from entering into this uh, situation where that one, one, one client team is like the only team that is competent enough to really yeah, continue moving things forward and uh, propose ideas. And so if the community wants to move away from them, like they don't realistically have any other alternative to switch to um, just because like no one else has been kind of actively exercising the muscles of uh, you know, like maintaining a client and uh, is in a position where they can just uh, step in and get the network to start relying on them. And so... When, um, you know, if you only have one team that's uh, in that position, then like they might be able to like have a lot of leverage to push a lot of changes, right? And like in the future, that might even involve things like saying like, oh, you know, Ethereum ecosystem is running out of money and like we are the development team and like we need two, two million ETH and like here's a hard fork and like, guess what? That hard fork also has um, a bunch of BLS precompiles that everyone wants, so are you going to take it, right? And uh, like that's, uh, yeah, like, like that's the, ki uh, the kind of risk that could happen. And there's like milder versions, right? Like even just uh, whether or not to add different BLS precompiles, like there's a lot of uh, trade-offs uh, just in terms of values there. Um, yeah, then on the pure technical level, I think uh, the best example of this within Ethereum is the Shanghai DOS attacks back in 2016 when, uh, there were a bunch of attacks on the Ethereum network that um, were um, basically yeah, involving an attacker that discovered um, how to um, construct transactions that were extremely slow for to process, but still consumed a normal amount of gas, basically exploiting all of the different bugs in the Ethereum clients that the attacker could find. And the network became really slow for about a month. It was basically a constant war where the attacker would find a bug and then clients would uh, release a new version. And then two days later, um, everything uh, the attacker would find another bug and then a new version and then another bug. During that period of time, the chain was very slow for a month, but it never stopped. 
always there was one client that was able to run at least a little bit, right? Sometimes there was one, there was a client that could not process blocks at all, but there was always one client that could run at least a little bit. And I thought that was a great example of the power, the power and like resilience that having multiple clients could get you. So that's why multiple clients are important. Um, in terms of how the Ethereum ecosystem is uh, going to get there, I think uh, one of the answers realistically is just social pressure, right? Um, like this is how we've successfully gotten from having one client with 80% of the market share for on the consensus side uh, down to something that's uh, much more balanced. And it's also how like the uh, percent of uh, censoring relays uh, got pushed down from 80% to about 33% over um, you know, the last year or so. Um, so there are precedents for just like plain old social pressure actually working, uh, which uh, I think is um, interesting. Um, and like that's probably the simplest answer. Another um, aspect of this I think is also that uh, switching clients is hard because uh, like an, indi an individual client has a big database, you have to sync, um, syncing from scratch, and then there's like technical difficulty. And once we have vertical trees, which uh, allow for something that's called a stateless client, where you can you can verify blocks without already having any data, because the basically the individual like accounts that get touched by the block are just added onto the block, and uh, you have proofs that the values are are, are the correct values. That like that's the thing that vertical trees let you do really efficiently then that basically means that syncing a new client can become almost instant. And uh, that procedure, I think, is going to make uh, at least running a new client from a technical perspective much easier. It'll make switching much easier. It'll even make it easier for people to run multiple clients um, uh, like at the same time, on this, uh, checking the same blocks on the same computer. So that's also, I think, going to open up a lot of possibilities. Perfect. And uh, at the beginning of the interview, you mentioned uh, Plasma and Validium. So I'd like to go back there very, very quickly, just for a second, because earlier this week you published a blog. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, essentially, uh, I'd like you to elaborate uh, why it's important uh, that we rethink the fundamental limitations of, uh, of, of Plasma-based scaling solutions. Mm -hmm. So Plasma is this uh, interesting category of scaling solutions that got invented in uh, 2017 by a paper from uh, Joseph Poon and myself. I mean, realistically, Joseph Poon did like over 80% of the work uh, in that initial paper. He deserves a lot of credit there. Um, and uh, basically, it's a... Uh, scaling design where you only need to publish a little bit of information on chain every time you have a block. And then you have this mechanism called an exit game where if you have a coin inside of Plasma and you want to take it out and turn it into a coin on Ethereum, you have to like provide pieces of the Plasma tree that prove that you have that coin. And then if it turns out you don't actually have that coin, then whoever the real owner is can challenge and provide other pieces of the tree and put them on chain. And if like you like you are in the right in the sense that like you are the one who actually has the coins, then you will be able to provide the pieces of the tree to the chain that that are the evidence that you currently have that coin today. And if you're not, then you would not be able to do that, right? And there's a lot of uh, cleverness in constructing these rules correctly, but. Yeah, that's, um, 
Once uh, you do that, then you basically create a system where you have a huge amount of activity happening off-chain, data off-chain, computation off-chain, um, but what you're, you are trading claims that the, the two assets that can then later be uh, withdrawn on the uh, underlying layer one whenever you want to, right? And so you can really yeah, get a lot of scalability but, uh, benefits that way. Uh, so the Plasma paper in 2017. In 2018, there was a, lo a lot of effort going into trying to put Plasma into practice. And uh, there were efforts like minimum viable plasma, plasma cash, plasma cash flow, plasma prime, a whole bunch of these uh, really yeah, fascinating plasma distributions. And uh, basically, they were trying to take that core idea and like turn it into something that's viable for specific use cases. One of the challenges of plasma is how it is inherently more application specific than something like the EVM, because in the EVM it's like a state machine. It's just like there is a function that tells you what the current, uh, you know, what the current numbers in the database are, and you just run the function. And if someone else ran the function wrong, then you can tell them where they ran it. Like you can tell the chain where they ran it, they ran it wrong, and that's called a fraud proof. And then you can go and run it correctly again, right? Or if it's a zk snark, you just like go and prove that you uh, ran the computation correctly and you don't have to think about what those computations are right in a plasma system that's not how it works in a plasma system the security of the plasma system depends on the idea that you have objects that have owners and the owner of an object has the responsibility of taking that object out if they notice that something is wrong um, so that's a different security model and it requires is the like applications to be designed in such a way that they're aware of who the owner of particular things is at any time. Um, and so it does require more work and it's also actually yeah, at, at the beginning like not really even possible to generalize to something like the EVM just because the EVM just like breaks a lot of assumptions that simple payment systems have, right? Like in a UTXO payment system, right, where basically a UTXO unspent transaction output, like it's like a virtual coin where if uh, if you pay me money, then I get a new coin, and then if I pay you money, I have to like break up one one of my coins into two coins that are smaller, and then I get back one of the coins, and then you and then you get a totally yeah, new coin that contains just the money you need. Like the nice thing about that UTXO approach is when you receive a payment, you get a totally new thing. None of your existing things can be changed without your consent. A balance-based system, right, where you just like track how much money everyone has, does not have that property. Because in a balance-based system, you can change my balance without my consent by increasing it, right? And so, like that's, it feels like a really sort of obvious detail, right? Like, yes, of course, you could send me money without my consent, and, and, but like, we don't care because sending me money is good. But, uh, well, for me, uh, for a uh, plasma system, it's uh, like that creates problems because uh, suddenly it means that like the thing that I have to exit when if I want to move my coins over to layer one is something that might be changed without even my knowledge and I might not have access to it and like what happens if, so, if, uh, if I don't and like you have to really look through those complicated cases, right? What ZK Snarks do is they massively simplify how these plasma exit games can work because they completely remove the possibility of invalid blocks. The only case that you have to worry about once you have everything BCK snarked is like, I try to withdraw a thing, but then at some point in the future, someone else ha um, has the same thing because actually I already sent it to someone else after I exit, right? 
And this is interesting because, uh, I mean, first of all, it means that if you withdraw based on the latest information, then your exit can be instant, right? You don't have to wait for other people to challenge because if you withdraw from the latest thing, then like obviously there isn't any newer thing that can uh, like come in and say like, oh, actually no, like he yeah, sent the money somewhere else by now. Um, then all of these um, like complexities around how to apply it to the EVM, they don't entirely go away, but a lot of them become much simpler. And so something approaching an EVM plasma actually becomes viable, which I think is super interesting. Um, so yeah, I and mean, I think uh, like just uh, like that fact, right? The fact that ZK Starks make everything so much easier to prove and uh, like they yeah, allow you to make things uh, be so much simpler, like really yeah, reopens the design space and uh, really creates a lot of this uh, new ground for experimentation to be possible. Okay, thank you very much for that explanation. Um, certainly a lot clearer for me now. Um, I have a very short question on layer twos for you. What are your thoughts, and again briefly, on the growing fragmentation across layer twos? Mm. I think um, this is one of those challenging questions because uh, part of the vision of layer twos has always been to try to enable independent experimentation. And like, for example, if uh, you really like the Solana VM and uh, you know you wants to be in Ethereum lands, well, like great, like make a Solana rollup, right? Um, if uh, you know you wants to, you really really need parallelization and you don't care about having an EVM, then like great, use Fuel and like Fuel has been like fully trustless for years now. Um, you know, you want to try to do things with Wasm, like great, we have Arbitrum Stylus and you can go write a contract with Wasm and interact with other people who have contracts written in the EVM. And like, there's a lot of value from that. But at the same time, there is a need for standardization and a need for basic interoperability. Um, for wallets to be possible, for account abstraction wallets to be possible, uh, for just like address standards to work, um, for it to be clear which tokens are the real ones, uh, for like what, which, which USDC is the real USDC. If you send me USDC on a layer two I've never even heard of before, like how do I even know that is USDC and you're not trying to fake me? Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, like actually solving those uh, problems is uh, like really uh, challenging. And, but I think uh, there is also a need for uh, some kind of standardization. And the thing that we have to standardize, I think, is going to have to be more expansive and like stricter than um, just saying like everyone has to support pri like private and public keys. But it's going, but it should be also something that is looser than um, you know like hey everyone has to be has to have an EVM, right? And like there is some middle ground that captures the things that we want to standardize and leaves open room for innovation on uh, everything else on top. And I uh, hope that we can have the layer twos come together and uh, really kind of decide like what that set of standards is going to be. Yeah, and for a non-technical audience, how would you explain the reasoning behind the pivot from sharding on the roadmap to, to dank sharding? Mm. Yeah, so sharding um, on the, uh, in the original vision uh, basically said that you would have uh, the layer one protocol would handle scalability of data and scalability of execution, right? It would handle scalability of everything. The uh, rollup plus dank sharding approach basically says the L1 still handles scalability of data, and scalability of data is just a much, much easier piece to handle than scalability of execution. Um, and then layer twos can handle scalability of execution. And by doing so, we 
take a lot of load off of core developers. Um, so core developers would no longer have to worry about um, you know, doing all of this execution scaling stuff at the same time as they're already insanely busy working on the merge and uh, improving the efficiency of Geth and doing all of those things. Um, and like those two different strands could happen, um, happen in parallel, right? So I think it was just a pragmatic choice to get something out to users in time. Like if that did not happen, then chances are like even right now there would be no scaling options at all. And like we'd still have to wait one or two years for like some kind of basic EVM sharding to appear. And that kind of basic EVM sharding would probably have a lower level of security, right? So yeah, trying, like avoiding that is something that we, yeah, I think really uh, cared about doing. And, and it's obviously also brought a lot more innovation to the space, like a lot of independent teams that would have totally not formed if it had just been an Ethereum Foundation hiring spree. Um, and uh, like it has created this uh, really amazing ecosystem. Um, so there's like, I think fr from a technical perspective in terms of what properties it gives users, like whether something is done by layer one or by layer two, for execution, it actually doesn't matter much, right? It's like actually pretty much the same security properties in a lot of ways. The yeah, difference is like basically standardization versus customization, right? And like layer twos are definitely more on the customization side than like the strong layer one approach. Uh, but, and so that's a balance where I think the ecosystem can constantly keep adjusting. And I think there is desire to move a little bit back on the standardization side. And uh, I think there is a lot of willingness between the layer two teams to really try to do that. But like that's an ongoing discussion and it'll keep happening over the next uh, you know, like few years and decades. And we'll be following it for the coming weeks and months and years as well. Um, so for a second, uh, looking forward into the, into the not so distant future, what excites you the most about the future of Ethereum? Mm. Um, I mean, I'm just excited by the fact that there is a, finally is a light at the end of the tunnel on like all of the hard things that I've uh, really worried about for a long time. Like the merge happened, we're you know, like out of proof of work. The um, scalability solutions are happening. We have ZK VMs that work and that are running and uh, that are not quite yet stage two, but uh, you know, Arbitrum is at stage one, um, then uh, you know, like Alex uh, from uh, ZK Sync announced uh, that uh, you know, he's hoping to get to stage two within, I think, like optimistically a few months or like, uh, something like that. Um, so light at the end of the tunnel on that, and then uh, light at the end of the tunnel on dank sharding. And I think the fact that we have both dank sharding and the plasma route are, I think, a big load off my shoulders as well, because only one of those need to succeed for Ethereum to be yeah, scalable um, enough for its uh, users. Um, privacy, a big, uh, I think, turn of the corner on that. Um, you know, we have like at least five different privacy solutions. Um, some. Uh, with the uh, proof of uh, uh, privacy pools, uh, a lot of uh, interesting uh, kind of ideas to like, have um, you know enough regulatory compliance uh, that uh, like the outputs of those privacy systems are gonna like be actually accepted and not blacklisted by everyone. Um, then, but at the like at the same time, you know, like not having like government backdoors that can see everything. Um, so yeah, I mean that was a difficult balance, but I think it's interesting that like with ZK Snarks, you can actually achieve it. Um, we have, uh, I mean, on the wallet security and account abstraction side, like account abstraction finally is a thing, and it has enough momentum that it's uh, moving forward on its own by now. Um, then, on the application side. Um, 
the fact that decentralized social is finally taking off is amazing. Um, the fact that we have like Farcaster and Lens, also things like ZooPass to try to do, you know, ZK identity. Um, the sign in with Ethereum is kind of expanding. Yeah, uh, like it, it really is turning into something that's uh, much, uh, a, a much stronger ecosystem that was available even one or two years ago. Um, so I think that's really amazing too. Thank you. And um, two weeks ago, we had a chat with Anatoly, and, and he said, and, and this is a quote, the difference between Solana, uh, the difference between a Solana conference and an Ethereum conference is that at a Solana conference, there's way less talk about scaling. Mm -hmm. um, so when do you think we'll see a shift from the current sort of infrastructure focus to a use case specific applications being maybe the dominant talking point? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. What do I th think about this? I think um, the, challenge, the, the challenging thing about use cases is that like talking more about use cases doesn't mean like that necessarily mean that you get wor working use cases, right? Like uh, I remember how you know like back in two thousand and twenty and two thousand and twenty one, um, you know like we had all of this. Uh, excitement about like you know the games and uh, like Axel Infinity and like all of these uh, NFT projects and uh, there's a lot like a lot of that stuff ended up not really panning out at all right and uh, you know like we saw basically that uh, like people were trying to basically use the casino as a substitute for making a game that's fun and like that's something that where you can convince yourself into believing that it works in a bull market. But then once the bear market starts, the casino stops automatically giving giving everyone money. It starts losing everyone money. And then if the fun isn't there, then like pretty much everyone is going to get bored and leave, right? And so it's uh, the, the the sort of thing where like on the application side, yeah, it's it's really important to both like take things slowly and to recognize that sometimes a lot of the valuable applications are going to be kind of the boring ones. And even that like, there's a lot of uh, like fundamentals and research questions that we have to think about when you think about applications, right? So like, for example, there's a lot of discussion around like, what is the right kind of DAO governance? And uh, the right kind, like that, that is an application level question, but it's also a deeply technical question. And uh, you know, if you get it wrong, then you're gonna make DAOs that break. Um, if uh, a lot of the discussion around ZK, like actually, yeah, you know, ZK voting is uh, is a really powerful DAO governance tool. Um, a lot of the uh, discussion ar um, around, um, you know, like advanced cryptography, like that stuff is incredibly useful for applications. Um, Zoopass, like that's uh, a very a very application level thing, right? Um, decentralized social, you know, very application level thing. Um, so. I think it's happening, um, and but I think uh, it's the sort of thing that like you also can't rush, and uh, you need to have the fundamentals be there in a yeah, really strong and really reliable way for it for the yeah, push on applications to really make a lot of sense. Um, yeah, like base, like the like those two things, I think uh, you know can only really yeah. Co really co-evolve with each other, right? And you know, like, I think it's uh, like I think it's really good that we're having all these deep discussions about like not not just how to scale in the sense of increasing TPS, but like increasing TPS in the right way. Um, and on the uh, application side, like it's uh, 
Oh, actually, a lot of the same stuff, right? Like it's uh, like the thing that I hate the most is like applications that pretends to be yeah, yeah um, you know, crypto applications, but then like the only way to sign in is a Google account, and uh, you know, if uh, like every. It, the whole thing depends on like one centralized server and there's no way to interact with it at all outside of the one server. And like it basically is just a completely centralized thing that just happens to like have a couple of tokens on Arbitrum or whatever somewhere or that just like happens to stick a root on Ethereum once in a while, right? Um, so yeah, I think uh, like discussion about applications, it's also important for that to really yeah, be principled and to sort of remember um, you know, like what, what it is uh, that we're actually all here for. Um, so I'm a big fan of having much more high quality discourse on both of those things. And like, I think you can't have a yeah, healthy ecosystem without that. Perfect. And uh, I have a question about the messaging of Ethereum. So is it programmable money? Is it ultrasound money? Is it a world computer, general purpose blockchain, or all of the above? Because it seems from a newcomer's perspective, it can be a bit difficult to grasp and sometimes make sense of um, compared to Bitcoin's sort of digital gold uh, statement. Mm -hmm. So Ethereum's positioning can seem convoluted, essentially. Do you how do you think the messaging of Ethereum overall can be improved? Mm. I think one of the differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum here is like Ethereum does inherently embrace pluralism in a lot of ways. Like there is no dominant narrative to the same extent, right? So like in Bitcoin, for example, if you ask like what is the narrative for how Bitcoin scales, people are going to tell you it's the Lightning Network, right? And uh, the Lightning Network doesn't really have significant competitors in that sense. Like you might have different flavors of Lightning, but it's the Lightning Network. And then if you think about like how Ethereum is going to scale, there is uh, the optimistic roll-up camp, there is the ZK roll-up camp, there is uh, off-chain data and uh, Validiums and Plasmas. There's really crazy stuff like um, Intmax that like almost no one knows about, which is like this weird thing that combines like four or five bytes of data on chain per transaction roll-up style together with a plasma system, and you get something that's uh, like has extremely strong privacy properties. Um, which is, uh, you know, really cool. So there are like five different ways to do something for any single thing that needs to be done. And like that's valuable. And I think there is a lot of uh, like actually good experimentation that comes out of that. And then like there is lots of people that have different philosophies about like what we're here for, right? Like I think uh, Bitcoin is because it's inherently application specific. To really be a Bitcoiner, you have to really believe that like either you know like sound like censorship resistant sound money specifically is something that's like incredibly important and good for the world. Uh, but in if you're in Ethereum, you can believe that, um, or you can believe in stable coins, or you can believe the whole money thing is stupid and we're just trying to make better DAOs. Or um, you can believe the, the whole money thing is stupid and DAOs don't work, but we're trying to do decentralized, uh, you know, like social media or carbon credits or art NFTs or whatever else. Um, you can believe that like we're trying to make better mechanisms for fundraising and uh, you know, like think about like quadratic funding and other kinds of public goods funding and uh, and things like that, right? Like there's. A, lar a much larger space of things you can believe and be in a, uh, that is important to you in the world and still be an Ethereum person. And Ethereum as a platform accommodates that. And I think Ethereum as an ecosystem accommodates that too. Um, 
And when you have that, then like it's, you know, you're inevitably going to just have internal conflict about narrative to some extent, because like each of those sides, uh, you know, like has its own different view on like what even is the uh, sort of overarching narrative that uh, combines all of the threads together. And I think that's fine. I think uh, it is something that is going to stabilize over time, especially as the technical role of uh, Ethereum, the blockchain versus Ethereum, the ecosystem change over time, right? So like, for example, if uh, it becomes clearer that let's say Ethereum is a data and settlement layer and uh, layer twos are the thing that where like application level stuff happens, like that's one direction versus if, uh, you know, like in five years, Ethereum ends up evolving to the point where like it does 80% of the work and rollups do 20% of the work, then like Ethereum does become something closer to a uh, sort of world computer you know, like operating kernel. Um, and at some point, it's probably going to migrate to being one or the other, which I think is totally fine. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I think I, I in general, I still like like I do think that it's uh, still too early to demand one uh, narrative for those things. I think like the correct answer at this point just is that there's uh, there's space for a lot of them at at the same time, and that's part of what makes it interesting. Final question, I'd like to get your thoughts on DeFi as, uh, as uh, our audience would love your thoughts on that. What are your current thoughts on the DeFi space generally and with, within DeFi, what sort of innovations would you like to see? Yeah, I mean, I think my view on DeFi in general is like the same that it's been for a while, which is like, I'm, I don't care so much about whether or not, whether people are getting 4% APR or 6% APR. I want people to not get minus 100% APR. Um, and so I, yeah. You know, like want to see just like simple and dumb and robust stuff uh, that just like serves some uh, pretty basic needs and doesn't try to go too crazy. Um, so, like, what things do we need, right? Like, you know, you need a stable coin, um, and uh, like, I actually think there's an um, opening for stable coins, especially in the like in the current financial environments where interest rates are pretty high. Um, just uh, because like there's a lot of different uh, like centralized services that are just kind of constraints to only being able to offer zero, and uh, there's uh, like it's possible for even for decentralized things to kind of potentially go higher than that. Um, and there's uh, value in trying to give people access to other kinds of uh, like real world assets or indices, right? Uh, so could be stock indices, could be real estate. Um, I mean, it could also be precious metals, I suppose. But like, I mean, for me personally, I think like stocks and real estate are the really, yeah, uh, the really interesting ones. Um, and on the real estate side, um, you know, including things like fractional ownership. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like in general, the way that our modern like society yeah, interacts with uh, real estate is like pretty pathological, right? Because like it's like either you own a house and you're like insanely over leveraged on one asset or you um, do not own a house. And in that case, like, you know, you have to pay rent and so you're implicitly shorting the community that you're living in. And like both of those seem unhealthy, right? And so, yeah, like I'm, if we can make fractional ownership uh, be the, a, yeah, like a middle ground that gets uh, actually adopted, I think it could be, yeah, super cool. Um, but like that's all, I mean, like pretty simple stuff and a limited number of things. And just like making sure, like work on, uh, you know, like making the oracles as, uh, robust as possible and uh, make the yeah, 
you know, like systems uh, for doing, uh, you know, like liquidations and um, all of those things just kind of be as, uh, you know, like standard and as, uh, and as robust and as um, unlikely to break as possible. Um, you know, just uh, focusing on user and wallet security and uh, all of those things and just uh, get to the point where, like, you have some number of components that just uh, do the thing that people expect of them and work and, um, you know, create at least uh, just globally accessible, um, you know, like access to basic functions that people really need. And uh, that's what that probably just is what well, already a really good and honorable thing for DeFi to be doing. Perfect. Thank you very much. We are a little bit over time and that's all we have time for today. Really, really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your responses. Mm -hmm. Wait, if you're the DeFi ant, why do you have frogs? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I'll share that with our designer. <laughs>